is Danielle Badaki. Welcome to episode two um, of A Seat at the Table podcast. I am so, so, so excited. Um, today we have the exceptional Mr. David Banks. Um, I am so excited to have him. He has years of experience in public health, and I think he's just the perfect next guest um, to talk about the opportunities within public health and to give you guys a little more information of what um, public health can look like for you as you embark on your journey. So without further ado, I would love to um, introduce Mr. David Banks. <laughs> How are you? I am superb, doing extremely well. How about yourself and your viewing audience? Oh, we're good, I'm good. I hope they're all good. I know cases are rising, so I hope we're all staying safe. <laughs> Mask on, hand wash. Yes, everyone, please. So of course, but yes, I would love um, to just start and we could get a, just a general overview of who you are, how you entered this field of public health, maybe your undergraduate degree. Um, did you necessarily always know you were going to be in public health? Did you just randomly find it and stumble upon it? What it has that um, journey look like for you? Sure. Well, we have to start way before my undergraduate degree with Doris Brown Banks, my mother, who was involved in community programs, including the War on Poverty programs of the 1960s. I was born in 1960, and in 65, she became an activist in the Queens community, Queens, New York, where I grew up. I remember the name of the program. It was CAUSE. I don't remember what the acronym stood for, but she was engaged in a variety of community voter registration drives and health fairs, those kinds of things. And so I got a, an early start with Doris Brown Banks and her mother, my grandmother, and my grandmother's partner, uh, Sarah, Sarah Dorsey was my grandmother's partner and my grandmother was Maddie B. Brown. They were involved in faith-based health initiatives. Mm -hmm. The church that my grandmother attended had a faith-based initiative and I started doing a lot of work with them, mostly stacking chairs at age <laughs> But that was how I got my start. I had my original career in social work. I began to work as a social worker. I earned a master's degree in social work and spent many years. And again, I, I attribute that to my mother. My mother was an income maintenance specialist. In other words, a welfare caseworker in Queens, New York. Yeah. And after school, I would go to her job and sit in the waiting room while I did my homework, listening to the clients speaking about my mother. That Miss Banks thinks that that's her money I'm getting. <laughs> and I'm sitting there listening, and, and I speak Spanish, and I'm listening to Latin American and African American folks speaking English and Spanish about my mother, just <laughs> enjoying the conversation. Then in the car on the way home, I would hear my mother's side of the story. She thinks she worked for that money. And I'm like, wow, this is a real issue here and I've seen both sides, I can really put this together. And I decided, and I, at first I was thinking public policy and then I decided social work. And then as I was looking at different options in social work, I saw a community-based health clinic that had a male responsibility program that was aimed in 1986 
at ending teen pregnancy in Houston, Texas, called the Urban Affairs Corporation. It was a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And they were going to prevent teen pregnancy by working with young men. And that just grabbed my attention and moved me out of the social and behavioral environments that I had been working in into a school-based health clinic. It was actually the fourth school-based health clinic in the nation at the time. And I got to see two pregnant 10-year-olds. And it was an eye-opening experience in terms of the roles that public health workers can play and, and clinicians and health educators, community health educators. It was very enlightening to me. And from there, I decided, yeah, this public health thing is where it's at. I'm going to do a master's degree in public <laughs> health. And that's all she wrote. Yes, spread the news. This is where it's at. I 100% agree. That is, is, I think that's a beautiful journey. Um, I think it's clear that your mother is an incredible um, role model for you. And definitely, I think we all have those people who shine the light and we didn't really notice until later on in our career. And we were like, oh, okay, so this is why I went towards that. I, I love those um, when we're able to connect those two. So that's beautiful. Um, I was wondering, do you think you could talk a little more, a bit, bit more on the, the program where you mentioned where they focused on the men in terms of preventing teen pregnancy? I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, it was state-of-the-art then. It's commonplace now. The Center for Population Options created a document in the mid-1980s stating that we needed to stop blaming the victim and focusing on young girls and intervention programs aimed at young girls to prevent teen pregnancy. That every single girl had gotten pregnant by some boy, or in some cases, some men. And so CPO, the Center for Population Options, decided to help create and provided technical assistance to school-based health clinics and others who were interested in male responsibility programs, working with young men to redefine masculinity. It's not having a child. It is a lot deeper than that. And so we developed interventions at preteens, well, I guess we call them tweens now. The young men were aged 10 to 14, so that it was from the public health model called primary prevention. Primary prevention models are aimed at an entire population prior to the onset of disease. And so this was a primary prevention program aimed at all of the young men at the E.O. Smith Middle School in Houston, Texas, which was in the fifth ward of Houston, Texas, a very low income and somewhat problematic area for community health initiatives. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's Incredible. I, I think that's an, an incredible approach that I think we need to continue even now. Um, oftentimes we, I think, forget that there are two sides of the story and there are two part, roles that are played. Um, so I love that, where we educate both populations and both the man and the woman on the importance of, you know, just safe sex and um, stuff like that. So that's lovely. <laughs> um, that was really good to hear. So of course, that was great. I would love to hear a little bit more. So as you're entering your graduate degree and you're going on, were there any difficulties? I think it sounds like that was definitely a program you definitely enjoyed um, in your program, I know. And even just hearing from other people, the MPH program was definitely a new program. Do you think you saw a lot of that? Was there difficulty as you were entering in, as you were coming out? What did that kind of look like for you as you were going through that? 
Yeah, I remember. The Council on Education for Public Health, which, as you may know, is the accrediting body of master's programs and schools of public health, there were 22 accredited programs in 1987 when I enrolled. And the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where I did my degree, was one of those programs. It was actually ranked number two in the country. I didn't get into the University of Michigan and Ann Harbor program, but I was admitted to the University of North Carolina School of Health of Public Health, and I enrolled in the Health Behavior and Health Education Department within the school. It was a fascinating time. Most of my classmates had significantly more public health experience than I did. I did have a master's in social work already, but I only had one year of public health experience at the school-based clinic. They were coming from Peace Corps service in Tanzania and just a variety of exciting opportunities that they had done. Mm -hmm. So it was a real cohort experience for me. There were 26 of us that actually completed the program out of the 30 who started. And they had some fascinating experiences that they were sharing as we went through the program. That is very cool. I think I'm, um, as I apply for grad school and I answer that, I'm, I think that's one of the things I'm most excited about, the cohort experience and learning from other people and seeing what other people have gone through and what they've learned and kind of what um, I can learn from them. Um, so of course, as we go into this, I saw as well that you also have a nursing background. I would love to hear a little bit more about that if you are comfortable sharing that and what that looked like for you and maybe why you chose to um, take on that um, journey as well. That's a great question, Danielle. So I was working in a public health program specifically looking at a mentor program among dying prisoners. It was funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I was the director of research and evaluation for a group called Volunteers of America. And we were doing this great program among dying prisoners. Many of them, this was in the mid-1990s, were dying of HIV disease. And I didn't understand what a retrovirus was and how it differed from a virus. And just basically what the trajectory of illness was for HIV disease. And in the middle of the Jessup Correctional Facility, it dawned on me, I should go get a nursing degree and become more aware of some of the biomedical influences Mm -hmm. that affect public health. And at that time, I made a decision to go back to nursing school and get another degree. That is amazing. I think as a lot of people I think wouldn't make that decision because that's just, I think a lot of people see that as a, as an obstacle. And I think so often we see things as obstacles and we just don't um, necessarily try to figure out how to get out of it. So I think the fact that you went and you um, decided to take on more education to learn more about what your field was in, I think it's just incredible. Um, I would love to wonder, so in terms of your nursing degree, how do you think that's helped you in terms of positions or maybe just understanding your field a little more? Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. Getting clinical training, whether it's in pharmacy, a physician's assistant, or as a registered nurse, really enhances the understanding you have and are able to bring to the table in public health. 
for me personally, it's just been very exciting. I've been involved in a variety of programs from male violence against women, sexual assault and domestic violence to community health and nutrition programs and having a medical understanding and being able to support my public health background with a clinical background has been immensely helpful in a variety of the agencies and organizations that I've worked with. Wow, that's, sorry, that's just so cool. <laughs> I love that. And the nursing degree is a license. Again, mm. licenses are offered by state organizations, whereas certifications are offered by voluntary organizations. And so despite the various certifications we have, like the CHES, the Certified Health Education mm -hmm. Specialist, a license carries a lot more weight. And honestly, it's reimbursable, whereas many certifications are not reimbursable by third parties, like insurance companies. And so the RN degree allowed me to move into some circles and to be compensated or to have my agencies compensated in ways that I could not as a public health practitioner. Wow. That's a, I think that's a great point as well. I, I did not know that at all. So it's very, very cool. Um, so of course, it sounds like you are definitely someone who sees obstacles and decides to, and decides to fix them. Um, it's clear and I think it's beautiful. So I would love to hear any advice you would have for maybe us as students, well, a former student, going to be a student again, but <laughs> as um, students are going into this field or maybe just entry level, um, professionals going into the public health field in terms of applying for positions. And I think we hear that the CDC is um, the biggest um, public health organization out there and something that we should all strive for. And while I agree with that, I do think there's other opportunities available for us as well. Um, I would love to hear your thoughts on that and where you think public health professionals would be um, which would and should go maybe in the future other than the CDC? Sure. So one of the biggest obstacles that I had to face was funding sources. The nonprofits that I was cutting my teeth on in public health just didn't have ongoing funding. United Way agencies and organizations were finding themselves out of money. And so Government contract agencies, we in DC, the Washington DC area, we call them Beltway Bandits. But these are organizations that have contracts with the federal government, Department of Labor, Department of Transportation, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of State. Public health professionals can be employed by these government contract agencies, and they have a little bit more stability than the nonprofit organizations. So in terms of both government organizations like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, state, county organizations that work in public health, you can also look at some of the government contract agencies as well as the nonprofit agencies mm -hmm. and trying to figure out how the funding streams in these organizations is going to work. The government contract agencies, ironically, will pay very high salaries for public health workers. The work is exciting. I worked with the Center for Substance Abuse Prevention's Technical Assistance to Communities Project. Essentially, we were a clearinghouse for information and for consultants to provide technical assistance 
to organizations that didn't have substance abuse prevention as their main mission, but were engaged in substance abuse prevention work or wanted to develop a model that would work around substance abuse prevention. So what we ended up doing was getting a $3 million contract with the Department of Health and Human Services Center for Substance Abuse Prevention, which is part of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And we were able to go out and provide important services. And so the salaries with that particular government contract agency were great. Contracts just kept rolling. And so there are a number of opportunities beyond the Centers for Disease Control, state, county, and municipal health departments, and the nonprofit arenas. Those are some of the areas that you can get employment in in the public health arena. Those were, I love that. I think you made great points. I think we often, um, we often go into these fields, especially public health, it's we run into those instances a lot where it's underfunded and we're just not able to get the funding we want, especially I think as undergraduates, we go a lot for these. Um, there are a lot of, I mean, just to be realistic, we have a lot of these situations where they're just non-paid internships, unpaid internships, and we kind of get worried, right? Of, okay, once I graduate, what is it gonna look like for me if I can already see that there's not a lot of funding in this field for me? So I think going into government positions is a great point and something that I think will help a lot of people because I think all people don't realize that, yes, there's nonprofits, but there's also government-led and funded um, organizations that can definitely pay you what you deserve and what you need to um, have the life that you deserve while still helping people. Yes, indeed. So I love that. Um, so I think another big thing, as we all know, of course, we are living through a pandemic. <laughs> and I think with public health, that has definitely, everyone I think now understands what public health is a little more and the importance of it in terms of students. And I think coming back into this, what opportunities do you think there are available for students in public health right now with what this looks like? and um, which positions do you think we can apply for? Which things is open? How should we be, maybe be branding our, ourselves? Should there be skills that we should be um, harboring or enhancing during this time? Most maybe some of us are waiting on maybe a job offer and stuff like that. Is there something that any advice you could give during this time? Sure. One of the things is that the students who are undergraduates in public health programs right now typically have very good skills in technology, social media, and their networks of individuals that they're in touch with can help them get jobs. People get jobs through people they know. Do not underestimate that in the COVID arena. Many people are enabled by technology, and I think that the individuals in undergraduate programs now need to leverage their ability, their networks, and their skills. Do not hesitate to become a student member of various professional organizations like the American Public Health Association or your local chapter of the American Public Health Association. There are also specific caucuses. I chaired the Black Caucus of Health Workers for many years, and those types of organizations will give you the network that you need to get a job, maybe even a job you hadn't considered before becoming active in that professional association or that group. 
So I would say at this time, networking is a critical factor. I love that. Um, so in terms of networking, what, um, so as we said, like we're in a pandemic, um, I think a lot of the networking opportunities have dwindled. Um, is there any ways, but you mentioned how technology, I think, especially in this generation, we, that is surrounding us, we are probably the greatest at it. Um, it is the best it, it can ever be at this time. How do you think we can use, I think something I've used is um, informational, um, informational interviews, where I've reached out to LinkedIn, on LinkedIn and just said, hey, like, you have a position that I might be interested. Is there anything I can learn from you? Do you have time to maybe speak to me a little bit on that? Can you, do you think those are helpful? And is there anything else we should be doing in terms of networking to still stay safe in this time? Yes, the information interview is an important tool. It's critical to establish a relationship with someone before you need their assistance in getting a job. And that's why looking at a variety of organizations that you can become involved with, volunteer with, offer your technology services or even services in person that, that are socially distant and provide other safeguards is critically important as opposed to calling people when you need a job. Not usually that helpful. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, yeah, no one wants to be called and say, hey, I need a job. It gets, especially it's super awkward. Um, they can get really, really uncomfortable for both parties. So I agree. But I love, this has been so enlightening. Um, is there anything else you think you would love to mention to students as we go through this time, but maybe even public health professionals, entry level, currently in it, um, any advice you would give to maybe advance their careers? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely, Danielle. When, when we started talking, you mentioned SMILE. So I'd like to leave your viewers with the acronym SMILE, S-M-I-L-E, S, speaking. It is critically important that public health workers are able to communicate, get training around public speaking. Mm -hmm. Toastmasters, International Organization, the National Speakers Association, undergraduate courses in speaking, get some practice learning how to speak publicly. The essence mind. M, the most important and number one factor that will serve you is your mentor. When I say mentor, I'm really talking about a mentor cabinet, okay? The president has a cabinet. You need more than one mentor. You have a mentor cabinet that you can go to about whatever issue you're having, whether you should buy a car or not whether you should stay with that particular partner you're dating, whether you should take this job, put together a mentor cabinet that's going to serve you in a variety of instances. Not everyone needs to be a PhD making $300,000 a year in your dream job. Yeah. You can find someone to serve as a mentor cabinet who has your best interests at heart, and they have an area of expertise that you can benefit from. The I is inquire about clinical training. We talked about nursing, pharmacy, physician's assistant. Think as you look at a career in public health about whether clinical training is going to serve you better for the kinds of roles that you want to assume. Yeah. The L in SMILE is lifelong education. See to it that you get the certifications, degrees, the training 
that you need to be competitive in tomorrow's work environment, okay? Lifelong training. I'm consistently, I've got two bachelor's, two master's, and a doctoral degree, but I'm consistently looking at other training opportunities in order to enhance my skills and to keep them sharp. Wow. The E is engage in volunteer opportunities. Those could be serving on a nonprofit board of directors or working in a homeless facility, doing nutrition classes at a community center. Look for opportunities in which you can engage as a volunteer. Speaking, mentorship cabinet, inquiring about clinical training, lifelong education, and engaging in volunteer opportunities. It's, it's the smile that you mentioned in our original wow. conversation this evening, Daniel. I hope that's helpful to you and your listeners. I love that. That was perfect. <laughs> I will definitely, I'm going to put that up in my room. <laughs> that was that was so informative. Just, I know it's a simple acronym, but I think it encompasses um, the things that we will need to advance our careers in public health. So that was absolutely perfect. So that was fantastic. Thank you so much for taking your time out to speak with me. This was so helpful. I know so many some people will definitely um, use this and it'll be beneficial for them as we advance our careers. Um, it was great talking to you and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day. Namaste. <laughs> Namaste.